once again to another meeting of the Harry Potter Book Club. I'm Trevor. I'm Sylvia. I'm Crystal. I'm Matt. I'm Alex. And I'm Vera. Remember, you can always get in touch with us through Instagram or Twitter at HPBC Podcast. And you can reach out to us with your questions or comments at hpbcfanmail at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you, uh, and we may even feature your correspondence on an upcoming episode. Before we jump into Chapter 2 of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, though, I want us to uh, just sort of have a walk down memory lane, a moment of nostalgia. Some of us were thinking recently that we began our first episode of the Harry Potter Book Club in December 2016. At that time, among the six of us, uh, with three families represented here in the book club, we had one child between us. Uh, Now we have five children, (laughs) which is why it's been sort of a struggle for us to be regular in churning out new episodes. But we're here tonight. We've had another great book club dinner feast. And uh, one of our little ones is crawling around trying to make contributions. So if you hear Alistair's voice, know that all he's trying to do is be a member of the club. We hope you'll be patient with us and enjoy. We also have a special guest sitting in with us today. Our friend Stacy is here, so she may throw in a comment here and there. So, uh, yeah, she's been a faithful listener, and we're just excited to have her with us tonight. Gang, we finished Chapter 1 of Chamber of Secrets uh, with uh, a, a bit of a surprise. And now, with the beginning of Chapter 2, we learned Harry can't believe his eyes at what is standing in front of him. Um, in our last episode, we sort of let the cat out of the bag at some of our thoughts uh, on this chapter. I think Sylvia said it was for her the most stressful chapter mm, in the entire Harry Potter. Pretty game. much the worst. Yeah. It's yeah. So I guess let's let's just have at it. This is our introduction to Dobby the house elf. What what were your first impressions of this character as he makes his grand entrance into the narrative? Well, Alex and I were talking about the actual size of a tennis ball, which is the the descriptor that JK uses for his eyes. Bulging right. green eyes the size of tennis balls, and that is just enormous. Especially when you consider that this is supposed to be a creature that is not more than a couple feet high. Right. And so the head is probably smaller, you know, proportionate, right, to like like the size of like a human of that kind of age, so maybe an almost two-year-old, but apparently has eyes that are like more than two inches in diameter. I mean, this is an insanely bulging. And this is like beyond anime, right? I mean, these are these are big eyes. I wonder why they didn't do that in the movie and stick right. to that. Well, because do you, it's do freakish you looking. Right. Well, now that makes me scary. want to go back and look at Dobby because I always found him quite difficult to look at. Yeah. I mean, he does, he looks yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. But <laughs> not, not as uncomfortable not, as he he's would He's uncomfortable, have if he was... but looking at him makes me uncomfortable. That's what I mean. Yeah. I, well, when they were, were discussing the bulging eyes, like for some reason, I'm thinking of an insect. I have no clue why. Mm-hmm. Just like mm-hmm. a gigantic praying mantis. Yeah. I mean, yeah, something of that effect. I mean, 
was, I mean, just gigantic bulging eyes. And thankfully, you know, in most of the books, they have a picture of Dobby, you know, right at the beginning of the chapter. So yeah. you can kind of see what he looks yeah. like. And it's, it's he looks kind of sweet. Yeah, yeah. his eyes don't look like tennis balls yeah. in that picture. Yeah. Right. Otherwise, he'd have to be quite a lot larger at like in general than we are led to believe he is. Um, it makes you wonder also, like, what, you know, why? Why would a creature need eyes like this? Night you know? vision. Presumably, <laughs> yes, that would be that'd be one thing, possibly. You know, night vision, lots of low-light environments, you know, working potentially in, you know, dimly lit castles or dungeons or something similar. But even so, you know, humans are able to get through pretty pretty well in all those environments. And our eyes are much, much smaller. I think it also highlights the intrinsic vulnerability yeah, of the house say. elf. Mm. Because eyes get hurt real easily. Yeah. And we also feature in this chapter him having to smash his head a lot against stuff. Mm. And it makes me think, you know, he a lot of his face, just a lot more of his face, which is already a very vulnerable thing in general for people, is like extra sensitive. Right. So that's one thing I want to talk about. Is this a Dobbyism, the like self-punishing attitude, or is this something that all house elves do, do we think? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I that was one thing I wanted to discuss tonight was the psychology that kind of goes into his behavior. I mean, obviously there's a lot of, you know, self-imposed guilt that he's yeah. dealing with. I don't know if that's, just something uh, something the family has just forced upon him that he works for, mm-hmm. or if it's something else. I mean, what do you guys think about it's that? It's what house elves are supposed to do when they disobey. I mean, Creature punishes himself as well, and Creature is the foil of Dobby in every way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's definitely something like house elves, it's part of their magic. It's they are meant to obey, and when they don't, they have to punish themselves. Hmm. Yeah, and speaking of the psychology, when we get to Winky, the house elf, mm-hmm. uh, in book four, is that yeah. correct? Yes, right. Yeah, she is no longer employed, so doesn't have to self-punish, but the psychology is still there. Mm-hmm. As she is the emblem of um, sort of this oppressive neediness toward a figure who could not care less about her. Mm-hmm. It was a horrifically punishing environment, and yet she longs for it even when she's in the Hogwarts kitchens. And, and also I want to bring up, I mean, you mentioned employed. I mean, it, is this, yeah. this is just a veiled, I mean, like slavery? It's, right, it's, it's I guess, slavery, essentially yeah. is what it is. And I yeah. guess everybody is just okay with it. I mean, they're not wizards and they're... I guess considered less than and right, it's explained it's, away by biological necessity, yeah, right? Well, right. they yeah. have to live this way, which is something I think anybody who's studied history of slavery that is a very common excuse. Oh well, if we weren't there to civilize these people and give them things to do, they would just be so sad. They would be so barbaric, and so and it's, that excuse is ubiquitous in slave communities yeah even Hagrid who has like perhaps one of the 
most kind-hearted natures, specifically toward more, like, animal-like creatures, which is kind of how I view Dobby. He even says, like, it's in their nature. It would be doing them a disservice to try and teach Mm. these, you know, quote-unquote animals to set them free. Like, he says specifically that, like, it's in their nature. Yeah. I mean, I kind of view house elves as kind of like, almost like akin to goblins, you know, I mean, they... They would they, be very mad at that. Yeah, goblins well, I, would be. I realize that, <laughs> but I mean, they're, you know, goblins, I guess, are more of a wicked type of... Uh, like cunning. Yeah, cunning, yeah. well... They would also be offended at that. They yes. probably would be. But, <laughs> the goblins are easily offended, though. So. Yeah, but I feel like... As far as we know, we don't have a large goblin listenership. <laughs> yes, and, and if so, I'm very sorry for how I've stereotyped you. Um... <laughs> But yeah, I, I don't know. I've, I've seen. I mean, obviously the uh, the goblins. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the goblins used to kind of be in the same position as the house elves, in that they were less than or served the wizard community until I guess there they, was a goblin th- rebellion. There was a rebellion of some sort. So yeah, that they that Harry should have learned about in history right. of magic. I hate how he doesn't pay attention to that yeah, class. Oh, I, I want to know oh so many gosh. things. Yeah. I know they reveal a lot just little tidbits. Well, haven't, haven't we also said, like with all these textbooks coming out, like can we please get a history of yes, magic? And not that. one of these Isn't like pictorial guides based Is on there? the London Museum. No. Like the actual history of magic. Right. Right. What I, like this is the kind of thing just like how you know you learn about these extended universes that J.R.L. Tolkien and mm-hmm. George R.R. R. Martin came up with, like, J.K., you still got a lot of time. This is this is the kind of thing where it's like, tell us about the Goblin Wars. Who led them? Who fought in them? What was it about? Why? What, what stirred this conflict? How did it relate to later conflicts? You know, does this all tie in somehow? Like, why would this be such a core subject for all these Hogwarts students to learn if it had no relevance to contemporary magical political life and you know i don't did you just say magico political yes that is that is maybe the best phrase (laughs) i've heard all week (laughs) oh yeah i mean i just think like why has this not happened with the house elves right a rebellion yeah i mean or is it just maybe down the line well i think they're they're really well suppressed yeah. And it seems like most households only have, like, one. So they're not really rallying together the way that the goblins did. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure. Like, I don't There's... know enough about the goblin rebellion because J.K. hasn't written about it. But, um, but at least... like, we only see... Hogwarts is the only place we see that, that has multiple house elves. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, even, even there, there's a, a tie-in with at least the American history of slavery. That, you know, families were typically broken up. There were large right. distances yeah. between mm-hmm. um, plantations or, or properties, and so communication and coordination yeah. was socially and relationally less possible. Yeah. Um, it, <clears throat> but one of the things that kind of weirds me out about this conversation in general is why why would you need a slave society and a magical society at once. You know, in general, when we read, you know, when you look at slave societies, it's because you're trying to extract labor from somebody, right? You're trying to utilize your power to get something in particular, usually work. With magic, you don't, you don't do any work, really. I mean, everything that you could possibly need to survive, 
you can get with a wave of your wand. So right. why keep these people enslaved? Throughout the canon, though, and it's interesting to me that we are being sort of hit over the head with the theme of, I don't know what you want to call it, ethnic, racial, creaturely yeah. inequality, right. mm -hmm. which is one of the driving themes of the entire canon. Mm -hmm. But throughout the canon, as that theme, it, as it becomes clearer, oh my goodness, this is what the entire conflict has always been about. Right. It's never been about extracting labor. Right. It's always been about magic is might. Mm -hmm. It's been about power, not labor. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the, you know, those are two, two very different things. You know, the superiority of the pure blood wizarding race has no need for the extracted labor of a slave class, but it does have a sort of psychological and existential need uh, to repress those who are other in order to prop itself up at the top of the social ladder. Yeah. Right. There really is not an economic logic. No. It's like a very forceful yeah. saying. Well, I, mean, I feel like Hogwarts may be the only place where it does make sense. They, they have a kitchen full of house elves because they're feeding students constantly. And so the households are, like, preparing food. But I feel like a household like the Malfoys doesn't really need a servant. It's just that they're old and Yeah, but also, rich. like, tuition at Hogwarts, like, come on. You could, yeah. be, right. you could be paying your, your employees. So sure. while, yes, there is more of an economic logic at Hogwarts, even there it wouldn't take very long to be like, okay, but that's a pretty thin economic yeah. logic. yes. Yeah, and one one thought I was having when we were talking about a reason for oppressing the house elves is they they do have magic, and yeah. it's pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so maybe it's just the thought of we need to keep this group of of creatures subservient because if they were to rise up against us, they could do wandless magic, you know. And so they they would be a threat to wizards um, well, I if, think... if we if they thought that they could in any way match a wizard. And yeah. so we're well. I'm thinking also, you know, well, like practically, like why? Yeah, you're right. The, the the question you bring up, Alex, is like why would they need these house elves when they could just wave a wand? And I mean, but but the, I think the thing is, you still have to wave a wand. You know, like. A lot of the times, I guess, the house elves are doing the more menial work. They're doing, you know, the, the cooking and the cleaning. And you still need somebody to do that, you know, or, like, at least wave that hand, you know. or, or you know. So maybe it's, like, with our rising standards, you know, like, of living, you know, like, here, if we have to wait, I guess nowadays, if we have to wait, you know, two minutes for our food to heat up, you know, like we, we're impatient or something like that. You know, like there's a new standard um, where, you know, like even 20, 30 years ago, like, oh, it was, you know, it, it took a lot longer, you know, for, for just all the modern conveniences that we have today. So I, I know that's kind of jumbled, but it's, I'm thinking, I mean, it still takes somebody to be overseeing, you know, the cooking and the cleaning and, mm -hmm. and, and doing all that. And maybe for a wizard, you know, that's just too much. They, they've come to expect that they shouldn't have to do that if they right. have a house elf. Yeah, for know. the older, yeah. richer wizarding families. 
because that's the I mean it makes me think of the wizarding families that have these house elves I mean like Downton Abbey or something like that these are the the servant staff you know that they're able right. to you know have available that are really just a piece of the actual estate there yeah. I mean like they come you know, with like, the property that they come with the property and I mean that's kind of what it reminds me of mm-hmm. well one other thing is in book six um, when creature is um, going to the cave with Regulus Black, and he's able to get out of the mm-hmm, cave. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's Ron, maybe, who says, like, mm-hmm. the house elf's highest law is his owner master's command. And so if you think about it in that way, how are they ever to be free if the only way they can be free is to be given clothes? Like, sure, they can punish themselves, but it's almost like this innate thing and then this magic that's working within them that will not let them be free. And that actually is the, the question that came to my mind. Do we really think that this is some kind of biological creaturely nature that they have to be subservient? Or, like the, the logics that we've seen play out in slave societies in our world, where we tell ourselves that they have this nature mm-hmm. when really this is something imposed upon them, are all house elves enchanted, perhaps, from birth by the wizarding community to be this way? I mean, or is, is this, it just part of their DNA right. is as this, creatures? Right. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it biological? Or is it is it like actually biological? Or is this actually biology as a mask mm-hmm. when it's really part of their political just order? Just indoctrination. Right. But there's also... Um, the the tendency for victims of violence to become dependent mm-hmm. upon those who victimize them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We see that in situations of abuse um, and traumatic violence um, that defying all sort of rational logic, there is a tight relational bond often in a sort of codependent way between victims and victimizers. Mm -hmm. And so there's the sort of magical or environmental or biological or, you know, sort of psychologically manufactured um, scenario. And we know that psychological states can call up magical enchantments Mm. because that's how Harry Mm -hmm. first discovers his... You know his initial um, pieces of magic, so per, it, it may be this. This has gone in a direction I did not foresee yeah. this conversation going. Uh, that like human beings, um, where if you ask why did I do that, there's never, you know, in 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 highly complicated situations, there's never a straightforward answer. We are the product of. Uh, innumerable different factors that go into creating whatever sort of decision or action that we may have uh, enacted in a particular moment seems like maybe what we're touching on is it it's conceivable with the plot devices and the structures that jk rowling has worked into the magical world that something similar is going on with the actions of dobby and perhaps of house elves in general that this is a complicated confluence of factors. I'm curious 
to what extent do you think Rowling is specifically attempting to recall visions of the African-American slave trade? It feels very strong to me. Very strong. Just in the the demeanor of Dobby in general, this very submissive... I mean, I feel like every... Um, history lesson or um, biography or book I've read about the African-American slave trade or movie I've watched, it just takes on this very similar, um, they, the, the, the similarities in the, the characters, the submissiveness, the um, even the punishment, though it's self-inflicted, there it recalls to mind like, you know, the horrible atrocities committed against slaves in especially the Southern United States. Um, and it just, it brings about the same sort of, um, uh, like when you read it, it just makes you sick. Like to, it's told in that whimsical way that mm-hmm. JK Rowling does that makes you feel like abuse is, um, almost easy to overlook. But mm-hmm. when you actually read it, it's mm-hmm. gut wrenching. Mm-hmm. I think when you read it, it's whimsical, but when you actually sit down and you think about it, yeah. then you're like, I mean, you think about. You know, the Dobby talks about uh, his family encourages him to, you know, yeah. have uh, have extra punishments yeah. for himself. And, him. like, and again, you're right. She tells it in a whimsical way. So it's somehow easy to read past it. But if you really do, you know, sit down and think about it or you discuss it in a book club I mean, <laughs> such as this, like you can really, I guess, get down into more of the nitty gritty yeah, details of like, I mean, and that remi- that's just like. How you know Harry is basically you know beaten and neglected mm-hmm. and and abused and mm-hmm. you know like she tells it in a whimsical way that's just kind of like oh well he's come coming from a tough background but when you actually like think about it you're like this is a horrible situation there, yeah. there's there's tough and then there's feeding you through a flap in the a door. flap in the door mm-hmm. yeah but we haven't quite Not gotten quite there, there, quite yeah. gotten there yet. Yeah, he basically becomes a victim of solitary confinement. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, and the imagery is palpable. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it is easy to imagine solitary confinement in the... Ter- the yeah, we haven't gotten there. Yeah, well, let's back, <laughs> up. Let's back uh, on back up. The, the thing that brought that to mind, that, that question, um, was a particular piece of dialogue for me on page 14 where um, he's talking about self-punishment, and Harry says, but won't they notice if you shut your ears in the oven door? And Dobby says, Dobby doubts it, sir. Dobby is always having to punish himself for something, sir. They let Dobby get on with it, sir. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The dialect. So there's the dialect, yes. Yeah. It, it recalls the ways of speaking that are typical in depictions of... African-American slavery in the American mm-hmm. South. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like I was reading uh, Roots or The Color Purple yeah. or, or some other sort of um, cinema depiction right. of life in, um, you know, pre-Civil War mm-hmm. uh, Southern plantations because there, there were three different things. One, the, the repetition of Sir. Yeah. Uh, second, the use of third-person language, which is almost a depersonalization. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, 
Um, he doesn't have agency. He can't say I practically. He has to talk about himself as an object in the third person. And then the grammatical inconsistencies, yeah. which um, at least stir up connotations of a lack of intelligence or a lack of formal education and further sort of demean uh, Dobby into this stereotypical submissive position. It, it struck me um, as an adult like I, I feel like I'm reading something that is intentionally drawing upon tropes of slavery in the American South. Yeah. And I think it was particularly easy to miss the first time through, mm. not only because of the whimsy of the, the books, which is something we've hit on a number of times, but also the fact that I read this book at 12. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And so didn't have the racial and cultural awareness, the historical awareness to hear the undertones mm -hmm. that it seems like she's pretty thickly drawing upon. But now, I'll say, the, the most recent time I watched the Chamber of Secrets movie, like I felt the cringes mm -hmm. because it wasn't just Dobby the house elf. It was oh, wow, this is, like, pretty clearly drawing upon tropes and characteristic ways of speaking and being associated with American slavery. Mm -hmm. um, I recognize that in Rowling's context, Great Britain had their own slave trade and slave experiences, but it I'm not as aware of those, um, and it, it doesn't seem to me that those carry the same sort of images yeah. and historical memory that the slave trade in the American South did. Right. Yeah. And there's also, Harry asks, why don't you leave, escape? And um, Dobby says, a house elf must be set free. And so it's just interesting to me that there's this sort of magical restraint, I guess, on house elves that makes it impossible for, or at least makes them believe it is impossible for them to leave their mm -hmm. confines. That almost they, made me think of a genie. I don't know why. I mean, like mm. when I read that. Oh, like just, trapped in a lamp? Yeah, trapped in a lamp. You know, genie, I have to be free. I, I mean, I know that that has nothing to do with... Uh, has nothing with, to do with the new live-action Aladdin movie no, in no. theaters everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I was wondering... Um, so Dobby was able to disobey the Malfoys by coming to visit Harry so much so that he has to punish himself. But if that's the case, why why is he being so secretive about this plot at Hogwarts? Why can't he just spill the beans about what's going on? Like obviously it's a device plot here. We're like we're, we need we need this mystery, yeah. but it's just maybe it's a plot hole. But it's so unbelievable to me that like he has to be super secretive about this plot with he who must not be named. What do you guys think? I mean, I think, I think maybe, maybe he's been explicitly told not to talk about certain things, mm -hmm. but he's not been explicitly told, don't mm -hmm. go warn Harry Potter. Oh, that's yeah. good. Do you know what yep. I mean? Yeah. So that may be the loophole is that his family didn't tell him you can't do that, but he mm -hmm. has been told, to, don't mention to anybody about, you know, what mm -hmm. we've been talking about. To a family as arrogant as the Malfoys, 
I don't think it would even occur to them that their slave would go and run and tell Harry Potter anything. That's true. And they yeah. don't notice he's missing, obviously. Right. Yeah. They don't have a clue. So. Right. One other thought to me, though, is it does seem like he has to punish himself with some kind of ratio to what there, disobedience yeah, he is levels. committing. Oh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So he, when he says, like, Dobby will have to press his ears in the oven for this. Like, yeah. that, I think, indicates, you know, certain smaller offenses, he might just have to whack his head against the wall. And then there's, like, the press the ears in the oven thing. Mm. Perhaps he doesn't say anything because there is a point at which he would have to kill himself or I, something so, similar. I think uh, it, it seems to me more that he cannot disobey an explicit order. Mm-hmm. But when he knows that he is doing something against the interests of his family, he punishes himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. punishment is a self-imposed um, consequence for a perceived act of dishonor, disrespect, or disobedience from what would have been told him. Mm-hmm. But house elves cannot disobey. Mm. Even when creature wants to disobey with all his heart, mm-hmm. he yeah. must obey. But we do learn there that precision in language is absolutely yeah. necessary. Mm-hmm. That's true. And so I think book, what is that? Five. Five gives us a sort of window into what may be going on here is that a master who thinks they're covering all their bases but is using imprecise language leaves a loophole mm-hmm. that allows for a a kind of action against the interest of the master which is not explicit disobedience yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's... but still enough that he's having to punish himself just for being right he knows he's doing something yeah. that would displease the malfoys but he can do it because it's not actually disobedience against the letter of the, the letter command of the law, yeah. yeah okay yeah mm. So Dobby has come to warn Harry that he must not go back to Hogwarts because terrible things are going to happen there this year. Terrible things plotted by unknown persons. And he also says it is not, not, he who must not be named, (laughs) sir. So, clearly, J.K. didn't switch up the bad guy on us in book two. (laughs) She did not. So, I, yeah, what do you you guys think about that? He says it's not he who must not be named. Well, obviously, he's got to find out who's the family you belong to. He's not going to get that, obviously, because, I mean, it doesn't, it kind of doesn't matter what Harry does or says to Dobby, whether he is basically treating him like a human being, you know, or like an actual uh, person of value, or he's asking him, you know, like probing questions. No matter what, he's either getting wails of approval or he's getting, you know, like these tantrums, you know, in in the room that are making it incredibly difficult for the Dursleys to get on with their dinner so that Vern can sell his drills. Mm. Vern. 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 Vern can sell his drills um, first name basis yeah yeah what what do you think 
Dobby and through Dobby, Rowling is attempting to communicate in that line. That's not, what confuses me. Not he who must not be named, sir. Because he, he doesn't ask who is doing this. He asks, this hasn't got anything to do with Bullock. Yeah. Sorry, you know who has it. So the question is, does this have anything to do with you know who? And Dobby's answer is, is... not he who must not be named. But Dobby's eyes were wide and he seemed to be trying to give Harry a hint, is what the text says. Yeah. Does And my question was, does Dobby know it's Tom Riddle? Yeah. It's not Voldemort. It's not he who must not be named. He's not that person yet. Mm-hmm. It's not he who must not be named, but my eyes are wide. Are you picking up what I'm putting right. down? It's Tom Riddle. Is that the loophole? Is that what he's getting after? That, I mean, it that, is him, but it's not him yet. It's pre-him. That's That was okay. my reading of it now the 15th time through right. this book. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever paid attention to that before. So... Vera had the exact same thought earlier today, and my thought going along with that then is, okay, then that would put Dobby's actions later in the story very much suspect to me, because he would have information about the the nature of horcruxes. Horcruxes. Yeah. Because he so, says later so on, he says, also... Right underneath that, he says... He's talking about Dumbledore. He has... Powers that rival those of you must not be named at the height of his strength, but sir, there are powers Dumbledore doesn't. Powers right. no decent wizard. Right. Which is the language used he, of Horcruxes yes, later. He knows right. about Horcruxes. Does not. Um, oh my gosh. Malfoy totally blanking on the name. Malfoy. No, um, the uh, Slug Dark Arts Slughorn. Slughorn uses almost the exact no decent. No right. decent wizard. Yeah. Wizard. Uses that almost exact language, and then Dobby uses it, which right. means. That that is the kind of language that was spoken in Dobby's presence. Dobby wouldn't, I think, come up with that assessment of wizarding power necessarily on his own. Um, yeah, my reading is it's possible that Dobby knows something is going on with Riddle's diary. Similar to the way that Dumbledore has a hunch. But he doesn't know precisely the type of magic that's going on. He just knows that this is stuff that ought not to be messed with. Yeah. But it is interesting because, yeah, I, I got to that paragraph as well. And he's he's intimating that there are powers that Dumbledore doesn't understand mm-hmm. or willfully hasn't dabbled in Yeah, that are going on. And it's just so easy to fly through that. Yes. Here, because you're surprised. What's a house elf? <laughs> <laughs> he showed up. Oh, gosh, the Dursleys are downstairs. And Rowling is dropping like... These yeah. huge sort of ethnic racial tropes that are cluing us into the the inequality theme, the oppression mm-hmm. theme uh, in the canon. But she's also dropping clues about what's actually going on here with the culprit of that's responsible for Harry's danger and the nature of the magic that's at work in it. Mm-hmm. But when you don't have the lens to see what's going on yeah. your first time through, you, you really, it, you can fly through those yeah. details that, ah, I don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. moving on. I do know there's going to be a birthday cake flying through the air. Okay. 
I can understand that. And it's almost like our attention get our attention gets pulled to other more trivial but more immediate plot points. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I I have to say, I Harry is just such a sweet sweet person because he I mean all throughout this he's very concerned about Dobby's well-being not just like Mm -hmm. wanting to shut him up so that the Dursleys won't get him into trouble but he also you know Dobby's explaining his situation to him as much as he can and he says and I thought I had it bad staying here for another four weeks with these people that like verbally and physically abuse me and, like, starve me and keep me in my room and don't let me, you know, to even talk about the Use part the of my room. life that is <laughs> that is good. Yeah. Yeah, I just, he's he's got this just sweet perspective where he sees into other people's trauma and says, mm. man, I thought I had it bad, but you really have it worse than I do. Well, and it's interesting. It's ironic because Dobby is heaping on praise. Oh, Harry Potter is so modest. Mm. He won't even talk about his victories. And we're we're almost set up literarily to say, wow, Dobby, that's kind of over the top. But that is. That yeah. is the kind of person that Harry is. And part of it is because he still doesn't yet understand everything he's been through yeah um but yeah it's interesting dobby is right in his assessment of harry in these early books he's also sweet in that he doesn't just lie and say yeah i won't go back to hogwarts yeah i know know, yeah oh my gosh that would have been my my sensation yeah i won't go back give me the letters great thank you i have the letters boom give me the letters put the cake down yeah (laughs) Well, I will be... not go back to Hogwarts once I graduate. No. <laughs> yeah, there's a stipulation. Yeah. One other thing, too. I, I think Harry and Dob- Dobby are very similar in that, I mean, as far as we know, Dobby has always been with the Malfoys. We don't mm-hmm. really find out how or when he came to the Malfoys, but we were kind of led to believe that it's almost like a familial sort of thing. Yeah. So he has endured tons of suffering at the hands of the Malfoys as well, just like Harry, who has known nothing but the Dursleys until, you know, Hogwarts, has endured all this suffering. And they both seem to have this selfless, caring nature. And so I feel like it's very interesting to have them in this chapter together and giving this praise, like, it's almost like Harry recognizes in Dobby this sort of, like, kindred spirit. And it just makes me wonder, like, how is it possible that these two creature and person like how have they become these people like most Mm -hmm. most people enduring that kind of suffering do not turn out this way yeah Yeah. and i i I kept i kept being baffled by how dobby sees harry potter as this just beautiful heroic figure Mm -hmm. and he lives with the mouth right where did he figure that out? where is he hearing this you know Mm -hmm. and so i'm like i'm wondering if there is some kind of like underground house elf you know sort of situation where they are getting to communicate with each other and they're all you know they were all concerned about voldemort because that was not a good time for you know creatures Mm -hmm. of near human intelligence and they're both like Umbridge calls them. I have a totally different theory. Well, it's Malfoy complaining about Harry Potter all the time, and Malfoy is like, "God, Harry's, you know, 
cares about his friends and like gosh it's harry you know he you know ruined my day by being good at quidditch or whatever and all the whole time you know dobby's sitting there like oh this harry guy he sounds pretty great <laughs> well gosh harry escaped the dark lord whom our family who is abusive to you loves right <laughs> i love harry a new hero yeah, yeah, I, mean, I guess that it, i mean we're floating around i guess the question really of like why did dobby do this mm. I, I think mean, it's he is like harry in that he's willing to risk his own safety for the greater good like harry is willing to risk his life for the greater good and we see dobby like escaping the malfoys because he has heard that Harry defeated the Dark Lord. That is something that he could have heard at the Malfoys, and he realizes the Dark Lord is bad, mm-hmm. and therefore he is willing to sacrifice for this person who he thinks could be the end of bad, yeah. bad things. Well, and we almost don't have to have an answer, because the rest of the books show us that Dobby is one of a kind. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. all true. Yeah. He's not like any other house elf we ever meet in the stories, or anyone else has ever met within the stories. Um, And he is a paragon of bravery and courage and fidelity and loyalty and sacrifice Mm -hmm. to the very end. Mm -hmm. And so even if it's tough to, I don't know, uh, take seriously... Okay, this apparently subservient creature is risking life and limb to go save someone he couldn't have any sort of access to knowledge about. Eventually, we begin to understand, okay, well, Dobby sort of breaks the mold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so does Harry in a lot yeah. of ways. Again, they're, they're very parallel characters, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, they're... you know, we hear at the end in King's Cross... Dumbledore t- telling Harry, like, only a man in a million could have united the Hallows in the correct way. Mm. So it's just, I don't know, there's a lot of similarities in the two characters. I feel like Dobby would burst out into tears if he heard you say that about him. <laughs> You're a man in a million, Dobby. <laughs> but no, the, you compared him to Harry Potter. <laughs> and after, you know, reading this chapter recently, his sort of, I don't know, his emotional starvation for affirmation is just mm-hmm. very fresh on my mind mm-hmm. like when harry said i'm sorry i didn't mean to offend offend me yeah. <laughs> as if i'm your equal sit down in your presence i've never been asked to sit down by a wizard and it's like again we we keep coming coming back to this you know i i recognize it's been seven months since we've recorded <laughs> a podcast but if you listen to our conversations we frequently come back to this um, that the whimsy and childishness, the, the absolute fun and creativity of the chapters is a, a cloak for a much darker type of story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just Harry, but Dobby's experience is part of that mm-hmm. as well. I have a question. Um, why do you think that Dobby tries to get Harry not to go back to Hogwarts? Why is that his method? Because he knows that Harry Potter conquered the Dark Lord when he was a baby, and he also mentions that he heard that Mm -hmm. Harry just conquered the Dark Lord, like, a few weeks ago. 
And Harry's like, yeah, that's true. And Dobby is in awe. And then he says, okay, you can't go back. <laughs> Why is that? Because we know, and Dobby sees him as this heroic figure who has multiple times now conquered the Dark Lord. Why would he not be like, get ready. This year's going to be tough. But I know you can do it because you're the only one that can. Why is it, don't go back. You can't go back. My gut instinct there is because the Malfoys are involved and he has suffered a lot of pain at the hands of the Malfoys. Like maybe he's just trying to spare Harry pain or he feels like with the help of these people who have been so horrible to me, maybe the Dark Lord can actually overcome Harry Potter this one time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, I mean, obviously he has overheard something about the Malfoys. Uh, They're talking about Harry, and I think, you know, they're probably not talking about Harry in, you know, in any reverent sort of way. I mean, they're probably, whenever they say he has defeated the Dark Lord, well, he was a child. He got lucky. He did it, you know, and so that's how they're talking about him. And then probably with this new scheme that's Mm -hmm. getting ready to be hatched, they're thinking along the lines of, okay, now we got him. And this is how, you know, and Dobby is hearing this. And he's probably fearful now of his hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- I mean, a, a, a person who he thinks is, you know, I mean, a savior not only to the wizards, but also to the house elves by bringing down the Dark Lord. I mean, th- this is somebody who he needs to now, if he, he knows this information and only he knows this information and he's going to do something about it, then he's got to go do it. I mean, Harry's in real danger here because I think the Malfoys are saying we got him this time. Yeah. yeah. That seems plausible to me, particularly because that's the way Voldemort explains away Harry's victories mm-hmm. in a much later book. He he sort of narrates what you got lucky here because of this. You got lucky here because of this. I was overconfident here, or I didn't take this into account here. So it's always accidental mm-hmm. that Harry has emerged victorious. And if that's the narrative that the Malfoys are telling themselves as well, Dobby's like, wow, fooled him once, great. Fooled him twice, you're my hero. Yeah, okay, let's not, let's not push <laughs> Let's it. not press, like, let's, press your luck there, Harry. You know, uh, what is it? Discretion is the better part of valor. <laughs> and you're my hero, show some valor, you know. So, in order to keep Harry from going back to Hogwarts, Dobby engages in one of the most frustrating scenes in <laughs> the Harry Potter canon. Yes. Um, which is I less frustrating in the book. It's still, like, a- annoying, but the way that they shot this in the movies makes me so angry. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because why? Why, Harry, would you follow the pudding... To try with your to hands out, yep. looking I, like, yeah, for all the yep. world, like you're controlling it with magic. I actually liked that they dumped it on the guests, you know, in, in the movies. I mean, I, yeah, it was very frustrating, but here it's kind of explained away. Oh, it fell off the fridge somehow. The fridge was vibrating, you know, and it just slowly, you know, like, fell off or something like yeah. that. I mean, but... I also like... Th- how that I, I think that explanation the uh-huh. the cake being dumped on the guest is a much cleaner explanation nope. for them leaving than the owl oh, coming the owl. in later. I mean, to me, it's like 
somebody having, you know, an owl fly by and drop a letter on you, and you being so deathly afraid of owls that you just run out of the house screaming. I mean, that's, I don't know, that's kind of weird But it makes it so much more enjoyable, because it just, Uncle Vernon keeps having hope, and then it keeps getting dashed, and then the ultimate blow, it's like, nope, sorry, Uncle Vernon, you're not selling your drill. And that's kind of awesome. Yeah. It, It was that sort of comedic thing where it's not... The huge fiasco mm-hmm. that's the straw that breaks the camel's um, back. It's this very small thing that follows after that. Mm-hmm. And and there is a sort of comedic play there. Um, although it makes me wonder what kind of dinner parties you're throwing, Alex, <laughs> that you wouldn't expect guests to be disrupted if an oh, it's owl. just an owl coming <laughs> to the window, <laughs> dropping a letter on their lap. <laughs> Gosh, if I could orchestrate that. You've been to our dinner party. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. I just... Our our Harry Potter theme parties would be a lot cooler if I could get... (laughs) Oh, that would be a plus. Dishes served. For sure. By owl. By owl. By owl. Right. Or invitations to the party. Oh, gosh. We'll work on it. So Um, frustrating. Well, I I was going to say, well, okay, with the letter being dropped off, um, I got to say, I love this letter just because... I love it when they, when Rowling throws in these extra little details, you know, so in the letter that tells, you know, basically accuses Harry of improper use of magic, of underage magic, you know, there's, uh, the in, in the law, it's the decree for the reasonable uh, restriction of underage sorcery, 1875, paragraph C, you know, like, I even looked up. 1875 just to see was there any anything that happened in that I couldn't find anything I wish I could <laughs> but you know like you, can, you never know when there's going to be a little easter egg in sure. there um but then in there's history. you know and yeah and also like he was a serious offense against a non-magical community the muggles uh under section 13 of the international confederations of warlock statue of secrecy so like, I, I automatically I want to know what this is you know and I love it when, you know, these little things are dropped in because it just shares, like, that the magical world is so much more rich, mm-hmm. you know, than we mm-hmm. think it is. Yeah, and we get uh, hints and more information about the statute of secrecy and what led to its creation mm-hmm. in some of the school scenes throughout the books. Yeah. But, again, this is, I think... Matt pleading for the history text. Yeah. I want Just it. give I it to it. me all in one I need place. It. I need it. But also, I guess, with the letter, this was a big blow to Harry because, I mean, he even says in this chapter that this was his biggest weapon right here yeah. was Uncle Vernon now was able to read this letter and realize that, he, he, that Harry, as an underage wizard, is not allowed to practice any type of magical spells mm-hmm. at all. And, I mean, that was basically the only thing keeping them back. Yeah, from that was unle- his bluff. That's yeah, all he was had. was unleashing yeah. on Harry. And now, you know, the veil is lifted. It's, it's yeah. the whirlwind is coming for Harry. From a, an author's perspective, that's a gutsy move mm-hmm. by Rowling. Because what she's done is she's written out a very easy plot device for future novels or even for later you know because it's always the beginning and the end is sort of harry and the dursleys and there's a sort of witty repartee that goes on 
but she's she's written out the possibility of depending on that plot device which is both i think courageous on the part of an author um but also it's just um it's gutsy because either she already knows how she's going to handle future situations and create tension and resolution in their relationship in future books or she's just saying i'm i'm not going to be lazy i'm not going mm. to let this untold secret you know continue to manufacture conflict for easy laughs mm -hmm. i'm going to make myself come up with a different scenario so that their relationship has to be more complex and dynamic than just them being afraid that he can use magic but he knows that he can't but he can pretend that was funny at the end of book one. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I think it would get tired yeah. if she didn't have Vernon finding out the truth here. Yeah. So I think that was a really great authorial move yeah. on her part. Absolutely. So then the fallout is they put bars on Harry's window... They fit a cat flap to the bedroom door so that small amounts of food can be pushed inside three times a day, and they let Harry out to use the bathroom twice a day. Otherwise, he was locked in his room around the clock, is around what it says. Clock. So he's basically in a prison cell within mm -hmm. their house. Yep. With just, with just Hedwig. I just wrote down a few things because I think, I mean, we touched on it earlier, but that, like, whimsical language that's often used to describe, like, tr truly horrible situations. Like, I just wrote down, like, three things. Like, Uncle Vernon says, you know, you'll be pretending you don't exist. I'll flay you within an inch of your life. And then they put that cat flap in the window up. And it's like, when you think about that, like, he's feeling constantly threatened. And... I'm just, I don't, I'm just trying to think of, like, the psychological implications of that, like, constantly feeling threatened, like, mm -hmm. for your life. And, and it makes you go, well, no wonder Harry is willing to risk his life uh, and go back to Hogwarts, even though it's, I, th I think we, we see Dobby telling him, you know, there's this horrible happening going on at Hogwarts. But Harry's like, well, there are horrible happenings going on right. here. Like, it's better for me just to go back to Hogwarts for at least to have friends and community and people that love me. Here I'm getting horrible happenings and treated like dirt and in solitary confinement. I would rather, you know, suffer with my friends than suffer in, with my out. Yeah. At least in solitary confinement you can poop when you want. True that. <laughs> that's something we did not consider. No, that's, that's a good point, though. In many ways, his treatment is... Radically less humane than even like the appalling standards that are at many federal prisons. I mean, we 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 don't treat people that are murderers as bad as the Dursleys have treated yeah. Harry. Yeah, who is a child. Right, who is a child. A twelve-year-old child. But you know, I mean, you still see some of the goodness of Harry when uh, through the cat flap they give him some cold oh, soup. Yeah. He gulps oh. down half of the cold soup and then gives the other half to Hedwig. Because it's just hard th to read that. Yeah, just I think, I mean, like he's starving here and he's still sharing with Hedwig half of what he's yeah. getting. It's 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 hard it's hard to read 
because it's, and then he tells her like, well, don't turn your nose up at it. Like, this yeah, is all we got. Meanwhile, Hedwig's acting like a cat. Like, oh, I'm not eating that. <laughs> You're gonna. We're probably gonna lose listeners because you said that. <laughs> Listen, even if you love cats, you love cats because they think they're better than you. <laughs> like they look at what you'll eat and they're like, oh no. You're going to have to feed me way better than that. But then he goes to, like, he goes and lays down on his bed feeling even hungrier than he did yeah. before the soup. Yeah. So he, he's asking these questions as he falls asleep. Supposing he was still alive in another four weeks, oh. what would happen if he didn't turn up at Hogwarts? Would someone be sent to see why he hadn't come back? Would they be able to make the Dursleys let him go? And so Alex and I were talking about how like, when he's first admitted to Hogwarts and they can't get his letter to him, they dispatch Hagrid, you know? And, like, how how can Harry think that that wouldn't happen again? Right. Like, that after right. he's formed a relationship with Hagrid, Hagrid's not going to come looking for him and yeah. bust down the Dursleys' door and say, where'd you put Harry? But he hasn't right. gotten any letters. Yeah. So he's... Well, he's but now he, knows. now he knows. Now he knows. Maybe it hasn't hit him yet. I don't know. But, yeah, he does know now. Like, that somebody's Dom- been keeping Dombey my stopped letters. his letters, yeah. yeah. But, they, you know, he didn't get any. He didn't get any letter. He he got the one letter that it took forever to get to him before he met Hagrid. Now that he knows Hagrid, mm-hmm. like I don't know. It's it, you know. What are you thinking here? Of course, of course. The minute that train pulls in and Hagrid's like, "Where Harry at?" Right. Where where, where where's my boy? Harry? Yeah. Let's you know. Go get him. His, he's going to be revving up that cycle. Yeah, packing he's up gonna his be umbrella. Packing up his, you know, you know, eight, eight and a half foot, big muscled shouldered man, busting through the Dursleys' door. Ain't Vern ain't going to be able to stab and stop that. I mean, like, he's, no. Harry's going to go to Hogwarts. But I think though, it really speaks to like the power that the Dursleys have yeah. over Harry mm-hmm. and how they fully encompass his world when he's trapped mm. there. Mm-hmm. That he thinks this entire magical community that cares about him and has magic might not be able to make the Dursleys let him go. And we talked about Hedwig sort of being this symbol of connection while Harry's at, at the Dursleys. This connection to the magical world and now even Hedwig is like padlocked in her cage and he can do nothing. Yeah. So if he feels like even his connection to the magical world is under the control of the Dursleys. And you're yeah. right, it's, I think it's very psychological. Like once you, if you've endured 11 years of complete torture from this family... And then you have this amazing year. You almost wonder, like, is Harry, like, completely forgetting that these people care about him and love him because it's hard for him to believe? Because he's back in this environment. Right. Mm-hmm. And was it, you know, did that really happen? Was mm-hmm. that a dream? Yeah. I'm just saying, when he comes home on the Hogwarts Express this year, he should buy lots of extra snacks to, <laughs> to hide in his trunk to see him through the summer. That's what I would have done. Well, he's got a lot of gold. I mean, so he t- yes, it's he possible has money, for him but to it, load But up. it only works in the wizarding world. And so. at this stage, he doesn't know how to make one of those extension charms that become so useful later. Oh, the... So um, he can't just, like, fill his backpack yeah. with, like, infinite amounts of snacks. Yeah, mm. detectable extension charms. Yeah. Mm. That's yeah. true. So then he has this really weird dream. Oh, I loved that dream, actually. He dreams he's on show in a zoo with a card reading underage wizard attached to the cage. People are staring at him. He's starving and weak. He sees Dobby's face. He asks for help, and Dobby's like, you're safe there. And then the Dursleys are, and Dudley are rattling the cage. Yeah, so I, I th- that dream, you know, like, 
it's one of those things we, you know, we'll get into later books where, you know, like dreams are, you know, are more important. And, you know, like I still think this dream is, is trying to tell us something, you know, mm-hmm. Dobby believes Harry is safer where he is. But I mean, I think you have the question, is he, you know, right. Um, I mean, maybe in the short term, you know, I, I I don't know, but like, you know, he's there. I mean, like, are the Dursleys ever going to relent um, in, in the punishment that he's in right now? I mean, is he actually safe? Is he just going to slowly, like, wither away from lack of community and food and, you know, just basic needs that every human being has? I mean, is he safer? He is objectively safer. Right. Mm-hmm. Because as long as he is under that roof, True. the Dark Lord can't touch him. True. Mm-hmm. Now, Dobby may not know that, but Dobby seems to know a, a whole heck of a lot more, <laughs> a lot more than we give him credit yeah. for. Right. So he is objectively safer. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, yeah. regardless I, of whether anybody knows it. I took that dream in a totally different direction, Matt. Please tell me. Um, there's another time... When we've identified already in this series, when the Dursley family is gawking about it over a creature in a cage, in book one, when they go look at the, the reptile ob- exhibit, and I thought it was very interesting hmm. that they're all staring at this picture, and this picture that seems to parallel that earlier image, except now Harry is in the place where the snake was, hmm. and Harry's connection to the snake plays a very large role right. in the rest of this book. Hmm. That's hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's where J.K. wanted us to go, but yeah. that's interesting. That's a nice thought. Yeah. Well, it, they're, they're also in structurally similar places within the two novels. Right, mm-hmm. right. A caged animal early in book one, a caged animal early in book two. And they both get set free. Hmm. Unexpectedly, we, unexpectedly, by magical means. devices. Yeah. Although we'll have to find more about that. Yeah. Although, yeah, later. we can't give away that we know. <laughs> we can't give away that we've read chapter three already. No. <laughs> um, I, so it won't be a surprise, uh, of course, to the book club, but even to attentive listeners, um, that uh, violent trauma is an an intense um i won't say interest um it is a, a point of study for me i've spent the last three years working in that and that's part of the reason why a lot of my comments end up coming back to the nature of trauma and violent experience but one of the things that characterizes traumatic experience is um, intense stress and a perceived sense of inescapability. So potential trauma often has those two characteristics. It's not just that something is hard, but something is hard and the person experiencing it feels like nothing they can do can change it. And it's that sense of powerlessness in the midst of extreme suffering and adversity 
that often has intense effects on human beings. That's what Harry's got here. Mm-hmm. He's got bars on the window. He's got a cat flap on the door. And he's let out morning and evening to only use the restroom, deprived of any other human interaction, in part by the Dursleys, in part by Dobby. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's got intense stress within that home where, in our last episode, we noted that he's he's got frying pans sort of chucked his way you know, at a moment's notice for the smallest offense. Um, But now there's a sense of inescapability. He cannot go anywhere. Mm -hmm. And that has the power to break the human spirit and to, to have deep psychological and physiological effects on the human person and the human brain. Um, so when I read this, I'm, I lament, I mourn, um, because it is almost unbelievable that Harry could come out as unscathed as he mm-hmm. does. Mm-hmm. Um, he is a high-functioning, totally typical British boy um but his experiences suggest that he should he should be far from far from that well as the chapter closes he wakes up from his dream to find someone was goggling through the bars at him a freckle-faced red-haired long-nosed someone Ron Weasley was outside Harry's window. And there is a glimmer of hope. <laughs> a glimmer of hope, but then also freckle-faced, red-haired, got that. Long-nosed. Okay. It's an yeah. interesting way I to describe Ron. Didn't I, think we, I think we've talked about the physical descriptions of Ron before. Yeah. And how, oh, and wait, that's not Rupert Grint. That's character not... trait <laughs> descriptions of Ron. Mm. Yeah. Also are a little bit different in the movie. Yeah. But we're we've got our attention peaked. Um and a glimmer of hope has been offered as we turn to chapter three, which brings us to the end of this episode of the Harry Potter Book Club. I will tell you, devoted listeners, there were rumblings among members of the book club that this chapter was so short. And perhaps we might not have that much to talk about. But that seems to be a theme with this group of friends <laughs> when we get together after a feast. It, by my count, it's been well over an hour since yeah. we started this discussion. So I think this chapter ended up giving us far more than we could have expected uh, to talk about with you. Uh, I will note, as a matter of housekeeping... That some of our earlier episodes of the podcast are still proving unavailable on iTunes. That is not because we're negligent or because we've misplaced them. It is because our podcast host has changed servers and is taking an extraordinarily long amount of time to get everything set up so that the previously recorded podcasts 
are available on iTunes. I've noticed over the past few months, we've gotten a lot of low ratings, particularly because earlier episodes are unavailable. So just note we're aware of that. Again, I know I said this previously, but we've been told by our podcast host that it will be fixed in the near future. And for those of you who've made it this long in an episode almost exclusively about Dobby the House Elf, perhaps you could help bring our rating back up by um, offering your support uh, in the iTunes ratings. Remember, you can reach out to us at hpbcfanmail at gmail.com. And until next time, Mischief Managed. Check, check. Check, check. <laughs> Nut butter. Microphone. My name Nut is butter. Gilbert no. Say something. Say something, Matt. Hi. That's well, not hi. how you talk. Dobby is a free elf. My, My name is...